Um, we're beginning a new series today. Um, over the next five or so weeks, we're going to look at, um, it's called What Kind of Church? We're going to explore some of the values that give shape and give form to our church community here in Redeemer Central. Some of these values that have been embedded in our culture for many years. And we want to just speak about those and share those, particularly if you're newer to the community and you want to learn more. But hopefully this will help give some framework and some shape and just voice um, the kind of community that we're uh, seeking to be here in Redeemer Central. This is a real year of transition for us. Um, there's lots of things going on, and it's September, and it always feels like when the kids are back to school, um, it feels like there's a kind of a new start, a new impetus to perhaps our rhythms and routines. So hopefully, over the next four or five weeks, you'll get a sense of who we are and what we're um, about here in Redeemer. And today we're going to look at what it means to be a, a Jesus-centered community. So that's part one. You might have heard that, even Ian, at the start of today, talked about what it means, he's mentioned as, as a Jesus-centered community, and you might have wondered what that means, or maybe some of you think it's rather redundant because isn't all, aren't all churches Jesus-centered or about Jesus? And indeed, that would be true. We hope that that would be true, of course, that every church uh, is actually all about Jesus and nothing else. Um, but when we here think about Jesus-centeredness, um, we think about a number of things, um, and I want to speak to some of those things this morning very briefly. So, uh, like many of you, um, I imagine when Beth and I are looking to just relax on an evening, we'll jump into a TV show that we're watching at the time, um, and the latest episode of a TV show. And we've discovered that we're into crime and crime kind of stuff, you know, the shows that are like crime and the detective stuff. That's the stuff that we love to watch together. And I remember when we first got married a few years ago, we just dived into the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock Holmes series. Give me a hands up if you've watched that series. I think a lot of people love that. And Martin Freeman and that whole thing where they try to crack the case, try to solve the puzzle, um, lay out all the evidence before them. Um, we love that kind of thing. Um, and I guess some people, maybe even me in my own journey, even maybe you at times, we, we think we arrive at Jesus like that. Like we, we survey the evidence and we kind of arrive at a conclusion on this Jesus of Nazareth figure. We kind of figure that out. Um, that's maybe what we think, how we think we arrive at Jesus. And so as I, as I begin this first point, what it means to be Jesus-centered as a community, um, I want to look at what the Apostle Paul says. The Apostle Paul being one of the most, he is the most important Christian theologian. And he, in a letter to the Galatians, the church in Galatia, he says this, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin, for I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. A revelation of Jesus Christ. So to be Jesus-centered gives us what I want to call point number one, the foundation of our faith, the foundation of our faith. Everything that the Apostle Paul taught, everything that he preached, everything that he lived for was built upon the foundation of this revelation of Jesus Christ. And it was given to him by God. There was no logic to it. There was no puzzle necessarily to crack. He had had his, like the spiritual eyes opened the revelation, the unveiling. He'd seen something that he hadn't seen before, that indeed Jesus was 
the divine walking among us, that Jesus was God. And Paul, of course, had quite the Bible college or Bible seminary acumen. Um, he was um, well-versed in the scriptures, formal, formally trained in scriptural interpretation. And he's explicit that he didn't come to know Jesus because of that, because of leaning into his resume or his training. Um, he says, indeed, that it was when God was pleased to reveal his son to me. When God was pleased to reveal his son to me. Revelation, a way of seeing, a way of knowing, a way of understanding, a deep inner knowing. Brian Zahn says this, that revelation is not the end. It's the beginning. Revelation is not the capstone. It's the cornerstone. Revelation is not where we arrive it's where we begin, and Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. But this cannot be known independent of God's action upon us. God must take the initiative in revelation, and this is the work of the Holy Spirit. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the only possible foundation for Christian faith. And in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul tells the church in a different place in Corinth, no other foundation can be laid than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. And this is radical. This is, this is a radical thing because this means that our faith doesn't rest on anything else. It rests on, on the revelation of Jesus as the divine. It doesn't, it doesn't rest on, on right theology. It doesn't rest on any other agenda or even any other ideology. It doesn't rest on science. It doesn't even ultimately rest on the Bible. Our faith is in, is in a person. It is in Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of perfect theology. It's really important to get that. I believe it's what it means to be Jesus-centered, that it is Jesus that we look to and focus on and live for. Um, Jesus' own um, disciples, in fact, Jesus asks his own disciples, sorry, in Mark 8, who do people say that I am? And the disciples come back with various different answers to that question. They say, you know, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, or, or, or some of the other prophets. And Jesus asks them this really important question. I guess it's a really important question that we should ask ourselves, or that I'll ask you, or we should ask one another. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we have this interaction between Jesus and his disciples there, where Peter, just like Paul, Peter didn't figure out, kind of like a Sherlock Holmes figuring out who is this Jesus, let's weigh him up. There was a kind of revelation given to him as he experienced Jesus, as he, as, he, as he experienced Jesus, the Holy Spirit worked in him to open the spiritual eyes of his heart. So Jesus-centeredness for us here in Redeemer is the foundation of our faith. Jesus is the foundation we stand on, nothing else not even perfect, not good theology, not getting the right answers. It's on the person of Jesus. Number two, Jesus' centeredness gives us clarity 
on everything else. Not just the foundation, but it's also like a lens. It gives us clarity on how we see everything else. Jesus is the foundation of our faith by revelation of the Spirit. And what is that revealed to us? What is it that is being revealed? It is being revealed to us that Jesus is the perfect image of the divine. The perfect image of... Have you ever asked that question, what's God like? It seems like even Christians today are trying to figure that out. They even debate about that. I mean, is Jesus the God of... Or, sorry, is God, sorry, the God of the Old Testament? Who is God like? Is God the God of the Old Testament? The kind of the angry and retributive God who kills out of judgment? Is that who God is? Or is God more like Jesus? This question is constantly being asked, and it was being asked in the time that Jesus walked on earth. Um, the disciples ask Jesus in John 14, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do, not, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus is basically saying to his disciples that you have seen God when you've seen me. Up to that point, God was in, like, invisible. In, first, in John 1, 18 and in 1 John 4, 12, those scriptures tell us that no one had ever seen God. So the question was being asked, well, what is God like? And Jesus has come in to this world. He's come and spent time with his disciples and he's speaking to this very question that even we might ask today. That when you look at me, when you look at Christ, you see God. Or put it another way, if you've ever wondered what God looked like, God looks like Jesus. He basically says so much. Philip in the same passage goes on, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Show us the Father. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe in me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So there's this, to be Jesus-centered means there's like a clarity. There's a lens through which we understand well, firstly, we're talking about how we understand the divine, how we understand God. What is God like? And it's, it's radical. Jesus is saying, anyone who's seen me has seen God. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. In fact, Jesus is kind of bemused at the question when Philip, that Philip asks. He says, how can you say, show us the Father? It's like, I'm, he, I'm walking among you. Have you not seen it? Has the penny not dropped? There's a clarity, there's a crystal clarity that Jesus brings to this mystery of, of what is God like and who is he. And when we look in the face of Jesus, we see the face of God. And so Jesus-centeredness means that it brings clarity to how we understand God. And Redeemer, today I want us to know that when we see Jesus and his personhood and his nature and what he's like and his words and his actions, we're looking at the nature of God and at the very center of our universe is that Jesus. And I want us to know that that Jesus is the center of this community. That we are to be a Jesus people. 
a people that look like Jesus and see God in Jesus. And once we understand that Jesus is the image of God, he's the exact imprint of God's nature, he's the only perfect theology, then we can answer some important questions that people have wrestled with before. We can see that God is loving union. And we can see that we're invited to know God as loving union and as, as love. So does God send the storm? No. In Jesus, he calms the storm. Does God cause famines or floods in Pakistan? No. When we look to Jesus, we see a God who feeds the hungry. Does God inflict sickness? No, when we look to Jesus, we see that God is one who heals. Does God shun sinners? No, when we look to Jesus, we see the revelation that God is someone who invites and includes and welcomes. Does God condemn the guilty? When we look to Jesus, we see someone who reveals God as one who saves, not condemns. Does God blame the afflicted? When we look to Jesus, we see a God of mercy. Does God resent human pleasure? When we look to Jesus, we see a God who turns water into wine. Does God take sides in our hostilities? When we look to Jesus, we see a God who humanizes the other. Does God kill his enemies? Well, when we look to Jesus, we see a God who forgives his enemies. Does God return with revenge on his mind? Well, when we look to Jesus, we see a God who comes to us with words of peace. When we see Jesus, we see what God is like. There's no other story. There's no Old Testament version. That is the divine mystery. Christ, who feeds the hungry, calms the storm, heals the sick, welcomes the ostracized, saves and shows mercy, the one who forgives. There's a silhouette, an image of a silhouette that might come up on the screen behind. Hopefully that um, we'll be able to show that. A silhouette is a representation of something that shows only the outline or part of it. But with light, the silhouette kind of reveals a face that becomes more in resolution, if you want to put it like that. And in a sense, that's a summary of the scriptures, the, the unveiling revelation of God. It's like there's a silhouette in the Old Testament of what God is like. And as we move into the New Testament, we see the God of the old come out of the shadows into full light as Jesus. Does that make sense? And Paul talks about this in Colossians 2. He says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So when we ask, and even here in this community, when we ask, what does God look like? We're peering into this mystery that has now been revealed to us in Jesus. He's come to make God known. He's come to show us the way. He's come to show us what God is like. And the Christian and the Christian community is the one who looks at Jesus and sees the face of God. And that feels like a given. <laughs> it feels like a given, except it isn't a given. 
because you can walk into even our own hearts at times, our own experiences, or other Christian communities where their image of God is not like Jesus at all, and it informs all sorts of weird and wonderful and wonky theology. And so to be a Jesus-centered church redeemer means that Jesus is our foundation, but it also means that Jesus is the lens that brings clarity, brings clarity to how we understand God, brings clarity to how we understand the scriptures. He's the lens through which we look. Brian Zand, who I love and has helped me with a lot of this, pastor in America, says this, that God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but we do now. God is like Jesus. The Word made flesh. Amen. Thirdly, Jesus-centeredness gives us unity as a people in our diversity. Look around the room and see the diversity in this room. The diversity across this city and in this world, in the church, from nation to nation. The church is multicultural, multifaceted. There is a vision of church here that we are sold out on. And that vision is to be a people, a Jesus people, that find our unity in Jesus, which takes all the pressure off everything else. (laughs) There's a vision of church that is captured in Jesus' last prayer in John 17. Let me just read the prayer. This is Jesus praying. In verse 20 of John 17, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, the message of the disciples, the apostles, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I have given them the glory that you've given me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Then the world will know. It seems like unity is a really big deal. It's, it, it doesn't say, if, correct me if I'm wrong, correct theology, agreeing with everything. It says unity is how the world will know that Jesus is what we've talked about already, the revelation of the divine that it's when there's a community of people that are united in love, it doesn't mean that we agree on everything. It might mean that we don't agree on it very much, but we agree in on the fact that Jesus is our foundation and that he is the divine. Jesus' desire is for his church <clears throat> to be one, to be united. And the New Testament, when you look at it, is people from all walks of life and backgrounds trying to make that unity a reality despite their differences. And the call there is to live into the difference, but to stay united in love. How do we actually do that? When we look at the, Old, the New Testament, we see this unity in diversity. It doesn't mean that our beliefs or our confessions are not important. But at the heart of it is this, is this love. And it's not the same as what secular society would say, tolerance or equality. That's not the same category here. 
we unite around a common confession. Together we've been confessing it in our songs and prayers today. And that confession is that Jesus is Lord. That is what we're united around. And when we come to this table later, we confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the common confession. And we receive the filling of the Holy Spirit. The church is Jesus on earth filled with the Spirit. This is what it means to be a church. And I believe it what it means to be a Jesus-centered church. Wherever that's happening, wherever Jesus is being confessed as Lord, there's a church <laughs> happening. When there's people confessing that Jesus is Lord together and committing to one another, they are filled with the Spirit and they are, that is a church happening there. Followers of Jesus, followers of the way of this Jesus, the way of this Messiah. And the diversity in the New Testament is vast. Jews, Gentiles, male, female, slaves, free, different groups, nations, cultures, tribes, languages, ethnicities. The job of the church is to practice that out, to enflesh it, to live it out, to give genuine unity in our genuine diversity. And we do that by being radically Jesus-centered. When we all are committed to Jesus and fixed on living his way, we can get through anything. <laughs> we can get through any disagreement. We can get through any uh, different opinion. We can get through any view of theology. When we are fixed on the person of Jesus and his experience in our lives, we can get through anything. This is what enables us as a community to be a welcoming and inclusive community, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter your gender or sexuality or your background, you're welcome here and included. And the term that our leadership team that we've stumbled upon, and we've talked about this before on our community conversation night, that really helps summarize all of that third point about unity and diversity. The phrase that really helps us is a bandwidth of grace. A bandwidth of grace. If we can have a bandwidth of grace toward one another, forbearance toward one another, patience with one another, that there's a posture in that, there's, a, there's an attitude in that, there's a, we have grace toward one another first, before anything else. It's the way that we hold our beliefs, the way that we hold our interpretations, the way that we hold our opinions, the way that we hold all of that. We hold it all with a bandwidth of grace, looking to Jesus, looking to his life, his death, and his resurrection. We confess the creeds. We confess that he is Lord. And we are a church that is diverse together, looking to Jesus. And I believe it's only, I believe this vision is only possible in the church. For all of the church's downsides and faults and failures, I truly believe the genius of God in the church and that I think this is only possible truly when there are a people surrendered to Jesus above everything else that we can live together with a bandwidth of grace. So Redeemer, it's an, I invite us all, we invite you all into this, a season of beginning to practice that, to continue to practice that. I see it every day. We see it in our table groups. We see it in all the things that are going on in our community. We see that happening and we want to continue to do that in our relationships 
with one another in our communal life together. We can disagree on a whole bunch of stuff, but we confess Jesus is Lord and come around in love around him. Just as he and the Father were one, so we can be one in unity. I want you to look just finally at this image of the solar system. You have the sun on the left and the planets in our... The sun sits at the center of the solar system. It's obviously off to the left in this image. I should have got one more, but it's in the middle. But the gravitational pull of that star, of the sun, is holding all of the other planets and mass in orbit. In a sense, it's an image of what it looks like when Jesus is at the very center, when the mass at the center is Christ. Everything else can find its place around that in a kind of harmony, in a kind of rhythm. And the bigger we make Jesus at the center, I believe, the stronger the gravitational pull. And I guess it's a metaphor for how maybe community could look that if we keep glorifying Jesus in this place, if we keep making big of Jesus, if we keep blessing the name of Jesus, if we keep centered on Jesus and how we speak to one another and how we forgive one another and how we minister to one another and how we look and serve our world and our city, then I believe that it holds a community that is diverse together in love around his gravitational pull. Amen. Fourth and last point, being Jesus-centered gives us a model of how to be human. So it's a foundation. It gives us a foundation. It gives us clarity on how we see. It gives us unity and diversity. It also gives us a model. Jesus himself is this prototype human being that we get to follow. And it's why when we talk about life here, we talk about living the way of Jesus, which means not just the kind of faith that would pay lip service to Jesus or ascend in our heads to a particular belief, but the hard work, which we all feel at and get wrong of trying to make that actually happen in our lives, where the rubber hits the road, where we can enflesh it and work it out. Like an old friend of mine used to say, good theology has legs. It actually does things. It is put into action. It can't live up here. And so if we want to see our world, see others drawn into the gravitational pull of Jesus, if you want to put it like that, then we keep Jesus at the center and we model our lives on him, our communal life, but also our individual lives. Because he was the most alive human being. He was the most alive human being in total communion with his God, with the earth, and with others. And when we see his way, it is radical. What is his way? The way of self-sacrificial love. The way of releasing and relinquishing, not grasping. The way of enemy love. The way of welcome and inclusion. The way of grace. The way of honor. The way of forgiveness. These are huge ideas that are, you struggle to find anywhere else, even the way of forgiving one another, the way of generosity, the way of love, that love wins. And in a time of uncertainty, which we're living through, 
cost of living and all of the pressures on us. We always have choices to make and priorities to make. There are always temptations to put other things at the center of our lives or to follow someone else and someone else's way. But the Spirit of God wants to reveal to me this morning and to us again to encourage us that Jesus' way is where we're invited. The narrow way to follow him, the countercultural way that really truly leads to life. It'll never go wrong if we follow Jesus' way and have him at the center. When our lives look like Jesus, when our love looks like Jesus, when our speech looks like Jesus, when our attitudes look like Jesus, and goodness knows we all fall short of that. We are imperfect. But in grace, Jesus keeps inviting us on. His story is one of continual invitation. I believe, as a church, that this peace, Jesus-centeredness, is a foundational value for us. It informs so much else. And those are just four ways I think it informs how we do church and how we think of the communal life of the church. That Jesus is the foundation. Jesus-centeredness gives us the lens in which we look at God, at the scriptures, at life. Jesus is the one who gives us the unity in our diversity and Jesus is the one in whom we model our way of life. Nothing else, no other agendas, no other ideologies, no other politics, no other kingdoms, no other kings, but Jesus and his kingdom and Jesus' politics and the way of, of Jesus is what we want to be about. And we are imperfect in that. That's who we want to be as a community. I believe that when we do that, that there will be some life and joy and love and flourishing and that others will be drawn into that gravitational pull of the kingdom of God. I'd love to talk about the table, go to the table. I'd love to talk more about that. I'd love to invite the band up to come up, Matt and the guys. And I'd love to invite you all to stand as we continue to reflect upon this this morning. As we talk about the, uh, the table of Jesus, if you're new this morning or if you're recently new to Redeemer, uh, this is the communion table behind me. And we talk about this here as Jesus' table because effectively he sets this table. He, it's his guest list. He invites us. There's no leaders here policing this table. No one will stop you from coming to this table. In fact, the only thing you need to come to this table is a desire to come to this table because Jesus is at this table in a, in a, in a mysterious way that is above my pay grade this morning and beyond my time this morning. Christ is present here in the bread and wine unlike anywhere else. There's a sacramental reality to this table. And when we come to this table, we get to taste grace we get to taste new start. We get to taste life again. We get to taste acceptance in the kingdom and in the family of God. There's a place for everyone at the table. And so as we come to this table in a moment, um, as soon as Matt begins to lead a song, uh, I want you to begin to come up and just collect the bread and wine. Those that are part of the community here, you all know the story. We do like that click and clack. Get a, a wine or a juice and a bread and return to your table and just hold that because then in a moment after the song, we will take that together 
and it will be communal, communal. Um, and as we come to sing, as we come to the table, I wanted to leave us with something and I want to focus in on this beautiful passage in Colossians chapter 1, which speaks about Jesus. It is one of the most beautiful pieces of literature ever written, you could say. And it says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so let me pray for us this morning. Father, we come into the presence of your beautiful son, Jesus. And Lord, we come with parts of our lives that don't feel like they're being held together very well. And we rejoice that in you, Jesus, we have all we need and that you are indeed at the center holding all things in your hands unfazed in control always open and welcoming to us blessing us God of abundance so as we come to the table Jesus may you make yourself known to us at our points of need may we receive your grace apportioned exactly how we need it for the trials and the troubles that we each have and may you minister to us may you be revealed afresh again today to us may we see in your face the face of the divine the face of love in Jesus name Amen